Father, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would speak to us today and that you would make us attentive to your voice. God, we walk into this place from so many different spaces in our own life. Uh, Some of us have been discouraged. Some of us are full of joy. Uh, Some of us are confused. Some of us don't even know why we're sitting in church today, God, but we just ask that wherever you might find us today, God, that you would address us, that you would speak to us, and that you would take us to the place where you want us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So this week is our last week in our encounter series. Yeah, I know. Yeah, so uh, we have been walking through the Gospel of John, and we've been looking at various people who Jesus encounters and whose lives were changed in that encounter. And today, we are going to be turning all the way to the very last chapter in the Gospel of John. It is the final encounter, and here we find Jesus encountering some failures. And so I wanted to begin like this. I wanted just to ask you this question. Have you ever found yourself comparing yourself to someone else and walking away feeling like a failure. And maybe it was because you were scrolling your feed, or maybe because you had a conversation, or you had some experience, or maybe it's just this low-grade experience that you have of interacting with your friends, maybe at school, you see their grades, you feel like a loser, or other parents, you see their kids, you feel like a loser, other marriages, you see yours, you feel like a loser. Other people are spending their retirement magnificently, and then you think about yours, and you feel like a loser, or, or just You find yourself looking at other people and comparing yourself to them and finding yourself feeling a bit like a failure. You know, um, it, it is easy to think, I think, especially because of social media. And because when we scroll through social media, we can often get, the, get, get this idea that other people are living these beautiful, joyful, effortless lives. They're traveling abroad. Their kitchens look great. Their outfits look great. They're so happy, you know? And then by comparison, you feel so lonely or ugly or unstylish or stupid or, or like a failure. And your inbox, it's out of control. Your grandma needs a card that you have not yet written. And I'm sure you've not forgiven your father. And did you finish that degree? And what about your credit card debt? And you know, your partner thinks you're selfish. And are you making the most of your life? And then what about the real stuff? You cheated, or he did. Or you can't seem to find the person you want to be with or be that person yourself. Or you've been drinking again and people are starting to notice or the program or the job is a complete dead end, or the teenager's addiction is eating you alive. Your mom is losing her memory, and it's miserable to care for her, and you feel horrible about yourself that you even think that, but that's what you think. And you wanted to be happier and healthier and wealthier and more grounded, but you're just not. You know, today's message is not for everyone. It's not for the successful or for the wise or for the accomplished. This message is only for a select few. Uh, It's for the failures in the room. And you know who you are. (laughs) And perhaps if you're not one of those, if you don't 
live with any regrets, if your life is all put together, then perhaps you can listen to today's message on behalf of someone else, and maybe afterwards you can send it to them in an email with uh, the subject that just said, I heard this message and I thought about you, and when they, inter- when they listen to the introduction, they'll know why you thought about them. But you know, if you yourself have ever been there, if you're there right now, maybe you're, you're just, you're feeling like you're, you're, you're just failing in life, that I think you find, might find yourself addressed by Jesus in our text today. Because in our story today, Jesus encounters some people who had experienced some failure. And the story, of course, is set right after Easter. Uh, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He walked out of the tomb. He appeared to the disciples on a few different occasions. And here he now appears to his disciples again. And look what it says. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, The sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. If you're doing math, that's seven of them. There were seven disciples, seven failures, a complete group of failures. You know, seven is the number of completion in the Bible. These are a complete group. And Simon said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, well, we'll go with you. And they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, why are they fishing? Well, perhaps it's because they're hungry, but then they fish at night, presumably to have fresh fish to sell at market in the morning. You know, a few years earlier, Jesus had given them a new vocation. He said, you will become fishers of people. He invited them to be to to engage in a new vocation, leaders in a people-gathering movement that Jesus himself was starting. And they heard a reaffirmation of this call after Jesus' resurrection when Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so now I am sending you. And yet here they are, they're back, back to their old jobs. Now, there's nothing wrong with fishing, And there's nothing wrong with earning a living. It's just odd that Jesus had given them a new vocation, but now they're back to their old vocation. And I don't know why forsook him and fled in his hour of greatest need, that who were they to think of themselves as leaders of some new movement that Jesus was starting? Maybe they thought, look, after, after we've been so unsuccessful as disciples, how can we be leaders in this movement? And so they go back to their old jobs, and it turns out that they're not very successful in that either, because look at what it says. Uh, they went out, and uh, they, they, they fished all night, and they caught nothing. Now, I don't know how many of you have done much fishing in your life, Growing up, my dad had a little boat, and we would go out from time to time right out of Long Beach, just outside of the break wall, and uh, we would go fishing, and we would go from spot to spot. And I know the experience of going out for hours and catching nothing. And I don't like it much. I mean, I'm, uh, 
I'm a very frenetic kind of person. You guys watch me move back and forth and back and forth up here. And that's just all day long I'm moving. And I hate fishing, sitting, and catching nothing. And it seems like every time I fish, that's what it is. I fish and catch nothing. But can you imagine the frustration and the disappointment of these fishermen these experienced fishermen who go out all night long and catch nothing. Nothing to show for their efforts, nothing to sell at the market in the morning, nothing to put on the table for their families. But look what happens next. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. Now, I'm not a fisherman, but I've heard that fishermen love it when you point out to them that they haven't caught any fish. I've also heard that they like to be called children. (laughs) Now, at this point, they don't know it's Jesus. They only know it's someone on shore 100 yards away. But look what he says. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And so they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And we wonder, don't we, why are they listening to the stranger's voice? I might have said, look, mind your own business. You don't think we've tried the other side? It just doesn't work like that, you know? But maybe there was something oddly familiar about this voice. There was something about that voice that when you heard it, you wanted to listen to it. You wanted to obey. Well, upon casting the net, fish swarm the boat, and it's so much they can't even haul it in. And at this point, now the disciples recognize who it is on the shore. It's Jesus. Look at what it says. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for his work. Uh, In the original Greek, uh, the literal translation is, he was naked. And he put on his outer garments, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciple came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about 100 yards off. And so Peter hears it, and this is funny, you know, the text says, He puts on his clothes because he had stripped himself, or literally he was naked. Now, I don't want to spend much time talking about Peter's wardrobe or his lack thereof, but, you know, do we have any fishermen in the house? When you go fishing, what do you wear? Now, it could mean he was relatively naked, he was in his undergarments, or it could mean that he was wild and free, but it's odd that he puts on his clothes, isn't it, to jump in the water? You would think it would be just the opposite. But this is a wild, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a move that is not pre-planned. It's not well calculated. He just sees Jesus and he needs to be near Jesus. And he probably thinks, look, I, if I'm going to approach the master, I want to be dressed, you know. So jumps in, swims in his clothes. He makes this 100-yard swim. And look what happens next. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. And so Simon Peter went abroad and he hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not 
Torn. And we wonder why this little detail, there were 153 fish. You know, there, there's been a lot of speculation about this number throughout church history. Uh, Jerome, one of the early church leaders, believed that 153 was as many species of fish that they knew existed. And so maybe this is a way of declaring Jesus' lordship over all creation, over all of the sea creatures. Uh, another one of the old church fathers uh, believed that 153 was what was called a triangle number. This is where um, if you add them all up, they perfectly round up. So if there was a triangle, they would be, anyway, you, you get it. Um, uh, to symbolize the number of perfection, this is a perfect catch of fish. And I don't know, maybe Jerome was right. Maybe some of the church fathers was right. But maybe it's just that there was 153 fish, right? <laughs> And these are fishermen, they're fishing together, and they did what fishermen do. They would count their fish so that they could divide the couch properly. And this number stuck in John's head. He had never seen a catch of fish like this, or at least not since their original time when Jesus did this. But we don't exactly know. What we know is that when they get to shore, they find that Jesus is already grilling some fish. Look at what it says. Uh, and Jesus said to them, come and have some breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So they get to shore. And even though they have this dramatic catch of fish, they didn't need it because Jesus already has a delicious fish breakfast prepared for them. You know, Jesus is there on the shore grilling over a charcoal fire. You know, we talk a lot about Jesus the healer and Jesus the sage teacher and Jesus the Lord over all creation, but we don't talk enough about Jesus the grill master, right? You know, Jesus, chef Jesus, you know? And, uh, but I just love the humanity of this picture. Jesus is grilling over an open fire some fish, some fresh fish. And isn't it kind of Jesus to tell his disciples, bring some of the fish that you have just caught? You know, that's a generous description of the disciples' relationship to their fishing hall, isn't it? And Jesus prepared the breakfast, and now he's the one feeding them. And we're going to move on in just a minute, but let us just note this before we move on. I just want us to observe that Jesus in our text serves breakfast to failures. Jesus serves breakfast to failures. Now, where is it that Jesus meets his disciples? And I want you to notice he doesn't meet them in their success he doesn't meet them after they have used all of their skills and now they have uh, produced a dramatic catch of fish. No, he doesn't meet them in their success. He meets them in their failures. Now, I, I, I know Jesus can meet us in our success as well, but not here. Jesus meets them in their failures and he doesn't meet them in the middle of a devoted prayer meeting. You know, no doubt Jesus can meet us in our prayers, but Jesus doesn't meet them in their prayers. He doesn't meet them at a Bible study or at a dramatic, you know, heartfelt worship service. Instead, Jesus meets his disciples in their failure. And he addresses them and he invites them into 
fellowship, and relationship. And I just want you to consider before we move on that maybe it is that even though right now in your life, you do feel a bit like a failure. You feel like you haven't measured up. You feel like, I don't know if, how much I'm worth. Jesus thinks you're worth something. And Jesus invites you into fellowship. Jesus invites you into relationship with himself. Jesus serves breakfast to failures. Well, after a failure at fishing, Jesus addresses a failure of a much more significant time. Look what kind of look what happens next. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Probably looking at the rest of his disciples, and then he looks at Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me more than the rest of these? It's a strange question. And he said to him, feed my lambs. Or I'm sorry, Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, well, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, tend my sheep. You know, the failure of Peter went well beyond his failures as a fisherman. You know, a few weeks before, after Jesus told his disciples that all of them would desert him, Peter stood up and he said, even though all of these might desert you, I will never desert you. I will lay down my life for you. You know, Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, than that they would lay down their life for their friends. And Jesus, or Peter says, Jesus, I have no greater love than this. I will lay down my life for you. You know, Peter, in essence, is saying, look, I'm not sure about the rest of these disciples. They're a little shaky. I'm not sure about them, but you can trust, you can rely on me, though all else forsake you. My love is unfailing and my devotion is exceptional. Well, shortly after, while Jesus was standing trial, Peter was taken outside the courts by a charcoal fire. And he was asked three times a question about his relationship with Jesus by a young girl. And he became so adamant in that moment that he did not know Jesus, that he began to curse, a curse down upon his own heads. And then after Jesus, or after Peter denies Jesus three times, just on the heels of that third denial, a cock crows, and Peter just breaks down in a pool of tears and is just broken, and he weeps. And surely this was the greatest failure of Peter's life. And so Jesus says to Simon, Simon, do you love me more than these? Isn't it odd? Again, more than these. I mean, why does he ask about Peter's devotion relative to the rest of the disciples? Is Peter supposed to remember something in this moment? Are Jesus' words supposed to take Peter back to another moment earlier in Peter's life? Well, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus asks a third time, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. In some translations, it says Peter was hurt because he said to him this third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. After professing his exceptional commitment three times, do you, you know, and and after um, professing his exceptional commitment, and after then Peter being asked those three times, do you know him? And after denying him three times, Peter now alongside this charcoal fire is asked these three questions by Jesus, do you love me? And you can tell this experience, it hurts Peter. It cuts him deep. And then Jesus concludes, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said, follow me. You know that phrase, uh, the day will come when you are old and you will stretch out your hands and another will carry you where you do not want to go. Almost all the commentators say this is a clear and explicit reference to death by crucifixion where the crucified one's arms would be stretched out, their arms would be tied to the beam that they would have to carry then up to the place where they would go. Where they would be led to their place of execution. And so Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you will get a do-over. You will have an opportunity to express your love to me again. And in that moment, you will not fail. You will succeed. You will be faithful to me even unto death. But he says, until then, follow me. You know, these are some of the first words that Jesus speaks in the gospel to his disciples. He says, follow me. And it's the last words Jesus speaks to his disciples in this gospel, follow me. And it's the word that he says to all of us this morning, follow me. So as we transition kind of just, uh, you know, out of this story, I, I want to just stand back and I, and I want us to reflect upon what is happening in this moment. And I, and I want us to think about Jesus's encounter with this failure so that we might more deeply reflect upon how Jesus might encounter us in our own failures. And I want to make just a few observations about Jesus's encounter with Peter on this occasion. And the first observation is this. Jesus doesn't pretend that everything is okay and then moves on. He doesn't pretend that everything is fine and then say, let's just move on. No, we'll get there. The time will come when they will move on, but not just yet. Right now, we need to go back. And here, Jesus intentionally takes Peter back. He initiates the conversation and then very methodically takes him back to the night where it all happened. He leads Peter to a charcoal fire. He asks a seemingly innocent question with a strange ending. Do you love me more than these? 
and then a second time, and then a third time, and the third time cuts deep with Peter. And listen, you know what we're seeing here? We're seeing here that sometimes God needs to take us back to those spaces where we have failed, and we need to look at it in the face before we can move forward. You know, sometimes we need to go back and think, yeah, I, I was being way too controlling. I was way too selfish. Yeah, my, my addiction got out of control and it didn't just hurt me, it hurt you. And we need to do a fierce inventory of the ways in which our actions and our lives have actually done damage. You know, we can't just move on. Sometimes we need to go back and sometimes that's hard, isn't it? And it's hard because it's hard to look at your own failure. It's hard to own it. It's hard to hear how you've hurt another person. And sometimes you just want to move past those ways in which you've hurt another person, the, the ways in which you've damaged your, yourself. And, your, and, and you want to move past that. But sometimes before you move forward, you have to go back and you have to deal with the past. And do you note that that's what Jesus does in this text? He doesn't pretend like everything is fine. He is honest. He's real. He says, let's go back. Let's talk. Let's get into it. Let's go by the charcoal fire. Let's remember those three questions you were asked around that fire. And so number one, Jesus doesn't pretend that everything is fine and move on. Instead, Jesus goes back. Secondly, I want you to see that Jesus doesn't just go back. Jesus goes below the surface with Peter, doesn't he? He goes down to the root. You see, what was Peter's failure anyway? I mean, think about it for a minute. What was Peter's failure on that fateful night? It was dishonesty and cowardice, wasn't it? It was dishonesty because he told Jesus he would never forsake him, and he did, and he lied about his relationship with Jesus three times. And it was cowardice because in the face of danger, he fled instead of standing by the side of his friend and Lord. But it's interesting, notice in our text, Jesus doesn't ask him about his failure. What does he ask him about? He doesn't ask him first about his failure. He asks him, about his love. He says, Simon, do you love me? And look, when, when Simon betrayed Jesus, it's not that Simon didn't have love for Jesus in that moment. I mean, I don't think Simon ever stopped loving Jesus, do you? I mean, I think there was love in Simon's heart. There was a deep devotion and commitment to Jesus. I don't think Simon's problem was that he didn't love Jesus. The problem was that in that moment, he loved and he wanted something more than Jesus. It was a problem of disordered loves. And what did Simon Peter want more in that moment than Jesus? What did he love more than Jesus? Well, he loved his own self-preservation. Now, is self-preservation bad? No, you know, you hope that your children will learn some self-preservation techniques, that they won't uh, run out into the street when they're playing ball, that they won't hide in the oven when they're playing hide and seek. 
you know, that they won't um, stick their finger in electrical socket. You know, self-preservation is not a bad thing. You know, and, and actually caring about image is not all bad. Caring about, you know, the look of your house or about your resume or about your career or about your grades or about how well you're doing in dance or in soccer or whatever. And like, there's, there's nothing wrong with that, is there? There's nothing wrong with caring about those things. The problem is when those things become more important and they become a greater love than what ought to stand at the very center of our lives, which is love for God and love for neighbor, right? And so what's happening here, the real issue here is it's a case of disordered loves, and dishonesty and cowardice were only symptoms of the issue that lived underneath the surface, right? And what was that issue? It was disordered loves. You know, there's this um, scene in the uh, Harry Potter books where Harry stands in front of a magical mirror, and in front of this magical mirror, he sees his parents who he lost many years ago. And then a little bit later, uh, he invites his friend, his friend uh, Ron Weasley to come and stand in front of the same mirror. And Ron looks in front of the mirror and he doesn't see Harry's parents. Harry's like, look, my parents are in the mirror. And Ron looks there and he doesn't see Harry's parents. Instead, he sees himself holding up a Quidditch cup, which, are you... Are we connecting on, okay, you know, and he's excited, you know, and, um, and they're like, they're like, what's the deal with the, you know, they talk to Dumbledore, you know, the wise wizard, what's the deal with this mirror? And Dumbledore says, we see in the mirror what we want the most. And I wonder sometimes how many of us would have the courage to stand in front of that mirror and, and really look straight in the face what you want the most. And so here, Jesus is revealing Peter to Peter's own self. He's like, Peter, there's something below the surface. There was an issue of love. This was a failure of love. There's disordered loves. And so Jesus takes them back. Jesus takes them down. And then finally, Jesus, though, is eager to move forward. Notice what, what he says in the text. He, he, he starts asking Peter about this moment. He's clearly evoking this experience of Peter's denial. But he so quickly moves beyond the denial to his vocation. It's as if, it's as if Jesus is saying, look, I have so much more for you, Peter. Peter, your failure is not the end. And listen, your failures are not the end. They are not the most important thing about you. It's not the most important thing about your life. There are things that are way more important, says Jesus. Jesus says, I have something for you. I have vocation for you. He tells Peter, Peter, I want you to love and feed my church the way I love and feed my church. Peter, I am sharing with you. Peter, I am a great shepherd and I care for my flock and here's how much, Peter, I trust you still. Here's how much your failure have not put a period at the end of your life. Peter, I am entrusting you with the care of my sheep and my flock. Frederick Dale Bruner, a great uh, commentator on this text, he said this, I love this. 
He said, Peter, as we know from all the gospels, failed miserably the crucial weekend. Yet Jesus entrusts exactly such very human people with his mission. People just like Peter, namely problematic human beings. Any problematic human beings in the house? Anybody sitting next next to a problematic human being? Just take a moment and look at the person next to you and say, you are problematic. Just kidding, don't say that. But, (laughs) But he says, namely problematic human beings, errant, sin marred, but sincerely repentant human beings who confess their sins, but genuinely want to be real Christians. He says, these are the people who Jesus entrusts his work to. And look, there's no one else for Jesus to entrust his work to except for errant, problematic, sin-marred, but repentant human beings. Those are the only kind of human beings that exist in the world. Those are the only kind of human beings that attend Christ church. Those are the only kind of human beings that become your parents. Those are the only kind of humans that become your spouse. They're the only kind of human beings that become your children. Don't despise it. Just embrace it. It's reality. It's life. Amen? But for Jesus, the failure doesn't define the person. Or as Brian Stevenson, that brilliant civil rights attorney said, each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. Peter denied Jesus. I mean, like, could you think of a worse thing that somebody who had walked with Jesus for three years could have done? Somebody who just moments, hours before professed his deep devotion, I will never leave you. Even whipped out his sword, cut off one of the guard's ears to say, look how bold and strong I am. And think about how shamed he was. And yet Jesus says, look, Peter, you are far, far more than the worst thing you have ever done. Peter, I don't look at you and see failure. I look at you and I see shepherd. I see somebody who I can trust with my work. And listen, Jesus sees more in you than you see in yourself. You are a shepherd. You're a parent. You're a champion, you know? I mean, like Jesus sees something in you. He says you are more than the worst thing you have ever done. Failure doesn't make you unfit for the work of God. It simply makes you a human being. And so Jesus is eager, eager to move forward. Now, of course, this is different than us, right? Uh, We don't just forgive and then just start trusting someone again, right? And, And we probably shouldn't. You know, there's probably a lot of times where people do need space and time to rebuild trust. But I just want to point out in our text how eager Jesus is to move forward with Peter. He doesn't even say to Peter, I forgive you. Why doesn't he say, Peter, I forgive you in this moment? Perhaps it has something to do with what occurred between his failure and his recommissioning. Perhaps it has something to do with what happened between these two charcoal fires. Jesus didn't have to say, Peter, I forgive you, because Jesus already had forgiven Peter. He already had absorbed in his own body Peter's failure, my failures, and your failures 
past, present, and future on the cross. And he laid it in the tomb and he walked out of that tomb to say, your failures and your sins cannot pin you down. You can walk out with me into new life and new creation. You know, we're going to close this morning's service by sharing together in the Lord's Supper. And so as we prepare just to enter into the Lord's Supper, I just want to return to this point once again. Listen, Jesus still eats with failures. You know, that's what the Lord's Supper is all about. You know, there's a big debate in church history as to what's happening in this moment within the Lord's Supper. And clearly, there's mystery. Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you. This is my blood, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As if to say, every time you come to eat at this table once again, we are sharing together in fellowship and community that I have made possible because of the new life that I have brought into this world through my cross and my resurrection. Jesus still eats with failures, but it'd probably be better to say Jesus doesn't just eat with failures because failure is to name you. You're not a failure. You're a son or daughter of God. And that is who Jesus invites to his table, and that is who Jesus is inviting to his table right now. So I want to invite our band to come up. And I just want to invite you... Just to take space, as the band begins to sing over us this next song, take space to not be afraid, to maybe go to that area in your life where you have felt a bit like a failure, like you're not measuring up, and allow yourself to hear Jesus' words over your life. I am not through with you. You are more than the worst thing you've ever done. I have got work for you to do. I don't need perfect. There are no perfect people. I'd have to go to a different planet. And even then, you know, like Jesus, uh, allow him to speak over your life. And listen, if you're here today, you know, and maybe you've been journeying with us over the last few weeks, and this is all very new to you. And maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus, but God has been stirring something in your heart as we've been talking about Jesus. And you're like, I need this in my life. I need Jesus in my life. And maybe over the last few weeks, you know, John wrote this gospel in order to lead us into faith and trust in Jesus as the true son of God coming into this world. And if you are in that place where you're like, I want to receive Jesus into my life. Listen, as other people are sharing in this practice of, of eating the, the Lord's Supper, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you know, don't feel compelled, you know, to engage in that with us. But instead, during this time, just take a moment. And as others are, are taking, you know, these physical elements, just open up your hands and reach out to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you in my life. Lord, have mercy on me. Come in, rescue me. And Jesus will come in. All who call upon the name of the Lord can be saved. Let's pray together. And then I'd invite you just to prepare the elements and then I'll come back up and I'll lead us in partaking in these elements together. Lord Jesus, we come to you today and we would confess 
that there are areas in our life where we know we haven't even lived up to our standards. And some of us today walked in feeling overwhelmed by that gap between who we want to be or who we think others are and who we are. But I pray, oh God, that you would remind us of who we are and whose we are. We belong to you that you love us, that you commission us. And God, may you refresh us today with your grace and with your love. May you lift us, God, and may you send us afresh to go out into the vocations that you have called us into. And we ask this in your great name, Lord Jesus. Amen.